So we're talking about gifts and uh, how, how we have different spiritual gifts and how they can be used for the body of Christ. And, and today we're going to talk about how those relate to the mission that we have as people who have decided to follow Jesus, or maybe you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. Uh, if that's you, I want to I inform you uh, what the mission of Christ is, what, what we're gathering together for, what we are going to do when we leave here. And uh, we've been in a sermon series called Journey to Change. We are going through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter, week by week, and we are learning what Jesus taught. We are seeing where he went, looking at how he interacted with his disciples with one purpose in mind, becoming stronger disciples ourselves. That's our goal. We want to become stronger disciples ourselves, and we... Several weeks ago, asked her the question, well, that's, that's a good goal, but maybe, maybe I don't really know what the word disciple means. Maybe it's kind of one of those churchy words that we just throw around and I'm supposed to know what it means, and because I don't know what it means and I feel like I'm supposed to know what it means, I'm just going to nod whenever somebody says the word disciple, and I'm going to just fake it, and then maybe one day I'll understand what it means, and, and I understand that. Christianity is full of words like that. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we outlined how we define the word disciple. We take our definition from a man named Jim Putman. He wrote a book called Disciple Shift. And in the book, Putman says that a disciple is somebody who is following Christ, somebody who is being changed by Christ, and somebody who is committed to the mission of Christ. And so over the last three weeks, what we've been doing is taking a closer look at each of these characteristics, each of these uh, defining points of what a disciple is. And so three weeks ago, we started that by asking, why would anyone want to follow Jesus? If a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, why would anybody want to follow Jesus? And in that was our question. Here's my brief answer to, to kind of recapitulate that whole sermon. Uh, and I wanna, I'm going to start by asking a question. As a child, did you ever go to a dinner where your parents thought it was important that you look nice? Anybody ever go to a dinner where your parents thought it was important you look nice? Go. I mean, just, yeah, very good. I want to know you're with me today. All right, very good. So you've all gone to dinners where your parents said you should look nice. Maybe it was your grandparents' house for Thanksgiving or your parents had a work party and your dad's boss was going to be there or your mom's boss was going to be there. And they just really wanted you to look nice and, and have that good first impression. So, you know, there's no dirt underneath your fingernails, no chocolate smeared on your face. Right? You had to have clothes that matched and didn't have holes in them. And if those things weren't right, or if you did have dirt underneath your fingernails or, or chocolate on your face, it's okay. Mom and dad might be a little bit disappointed, but it's not a big deal. They'll just send you back upstairs and say, wash up better. Just, just wash up better. Clean your face. Clean your hands. Because they wanted you to make a favorable impression. They wanted you to be presentable. They wanted you to be presentable, and that's fine. The problem is, for a lot of us, that's the way we think about our faith. We think if we just go back upstairs and wash up a little bit better, we're going to be good with God. And we'll say, God, I know that I've made a mess of my life, but I'm really trying. I'm washing up 
pretty good. I'm starting to do some good things. I'm doing more good things than I am bad things. And I know I made a mess of my life, God, but I'm, I'm starting to wash up. Doesn't work that way with God. The problem that we have isn't one that we can wash away. We can't make ourselves more presentable. The problem that we have that makes us unpresentable before God is sin. And sin isn't something that we can wash away on our own. So here's the idea. We need a new heart, not a better soap. We need a new heart, not a better soap. And when we begin to realize that, then we can begin to appreciate Jesus and why we should follow him. Here's how Paul describes it. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 8, he says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Let me translate that. While we were still sinners, while we were unpresentable, Jesus made us presentable to God. That's why we follow him. So I asked the question in that sermon, who follows God? People who know they need to follow God. People who know that there's something going on in their lives that they can't fix on their own. People who know that sin has taken hold in their life. They know the cost that it has had on their life and their activities and the lives of people they love and people that know that they can't cleanse themselves of the wrong that they've done. Those are the people who follow Jesus, people who know that they can't give themselves a new heart. That's why we follow Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, as we begin to follow him, we'll recognize at some point that we're being changed by him. As we spend time studying his word, we'll see that we're starting to see things with Jesus' eyes and we'll realize that we're starting to walk with his purpose. And that's what we talked about last week. Right? We said that, that nobody becomes a better follower of Jesus on accident. It doesn't happen on accident. Nobody becomes a better follower of Jesus on accident. In the same way that you don't get in shape on accident... You don't learn calculus on accident. You don't get out of debt on accident. You don't become a better follower of Jesus on accident. We have to train for it. And so last week, I gave us a training challenge. I said, do something this week that makes your life worse and someone else's life better. I got several text messages from you guys throughout the week. Um, some of them were pretty funny. Uh, Tom Rosenbaum said, I'm going to be refing a sectional basketball game, and I guarantee you that's going to make my life worse. <laughs> uh, I didn't follow up with him. I don't know whose life he made better, but he definitely made somebody's life better and somebody's life worse. Um, but I, I enjoyed getting some messages from you this past week on how you uh, accepted that training challenge. So I hope you had some fun with it, and here's what I hope. I hope that that wasn't something that you thought about this past week and you're going to forget going forward. 
That's a way that we can begin to live our lives, to see things from a perspective that's different from our own. How can I make somebody else's life better, even if it inconveniences me a little bit? How can I make someone else's life better, even if I have to sacrifice something I prefer? And if we can begin to live that way, and if we can begin to see with those eyes, we can be the church that Jesus has called us to be. One of the things I love about this place is that this is the kind of place where we sacrifice for one another. So I hope that you continue to do things that make your life worse and somebody else's life better. So as we follow Jesus and we're continually changed by Jesus, we'll find that we become more and more committed to his mission We'll become more and more committed to the mission of Jesus. If you've been following with Jim Putman's definition, that's the third part of what a disciple is. Somebody who is committed to the mission of Christ. And that's where we're going to spend our time this week. And so if you're following along, you're going, well, okay, if, if a disciple is somebody who's committed to the mission of Christ, I have, a, I have a question right off the top of my head. If I'm supposed to be committed to the mission of Christ, I guess my question is, what is that? What is the mission of Christ? And I think Jesus answers it really well in Matthew chapter 11. He starts in verse 28. Here's what he said. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. If we boil Jesus' ministry down, if we boil his mission down to one phrase, I think this would do a pretty good job. Jesus' mission was to bear our burden. Jesus' mission was to bear our burden. Now, um, don't, don't just take my word for it. Let's test that hypothesis uh, through the lens of Scripture. Okay, now we don't, we don't have time to test that against the entire Bible. You do that on your own time. But we're going to run that uh, against a couple of other scriptures and see if this idea holds water. Jesus' mission was to bear our burden, okay? John 3.16. Let's see if there's agreement there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What is our burden? The fact that because of sin, we will perish. Did Jesus bear that burden? Let me just ask you, did Jesus bear that burden for us? Yeah, absolutely He did. Romans 5, again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's our burden? The fact that we are sinners. Jesus bore that burden for us by dying for us while we were still sinners. One more. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have a burden. It's the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came into the world proclaiming, I'm going to do something about that. And he did. So Jesus' mission was to bear our burden. And he calls us to live that same kind of life. Last week, our text, we said, if, anybody, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says it a little bit more plainly in Galatians chapter 6. He says, share each other's burdens, and in this way, 
obey the law of Christ. Share each other's burdens. If you do that, you're obeying the law of Christ. So our mission is to bear one another's burdens. That's it. That's what our job is to do. If we are a disciple, we are followers of Jesus. We are being changed by Jesus, and we are committed to the mission of bearing each other's burdens. Let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions. Whose burdens do we bear? How do we bear them? When do we bear them? That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Jesus does an effective job answering those questions in Mark chapter 9. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles now to Mark chapter 9. I know we've read a lot of Scripture already, but this is, this is where we're going to land. This is where we're going to stay for the rest of our time together. Mark chapter 9, we'll start in verse 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, Hey, what were you guys discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him and he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be a servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me but also my father who sent me. So the text starts with the disciples talking about Something that's really pretty common. It's a natural human desire. They want to be great. The disciples, they really want to be great. They want to be awesome at something. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we all have a little bit of that in ourselves. Some of us have a lot of that. Some of us have a little bit of that. But we want to be great. right? We want to be a great athlete. And if we know we can't be a great athlete, we want to cheer for a great team. Right? And if we can't cheer for a great team, then we'll at least make fun of people who do cheer for great teams, right? Anybody in here like the Patriots? Don't raise your hand if you do. <laughs> right? We want to be great. If we can't be a great athlete, we're going to cheer for a great team. And if we can't cheer for a great team, then we're going to make fun of people who do cheer for a great team. We want to be great. If, we, uh, if we're not a great athlete, maybe we want to be a great student, or maybe you want to be a great employee or a great boss. Or we want to be a great parent. We want to be known as great in our area of expertise. And you know, somehow I don't really have a problem with that. I think some of those are really pretty noble endeavors. I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great husband. But somehow this kind of feels a little different, doesn't it? This feels a little bit different. The disciples are walking behind Jesus... And, you know, they've seen Jesus do a thing or two in his ministry. You know, he's calmed a storm in the middle of a sea, and he's raised a little girl from the dead, and he's fed thousands and thousands of people with just a little bit of food, and he's uh, uh, released people from demonic captivity. He's done all of these incredible things in his ministry, and they're walking along behind Jesus, and the disciples are going, hey, hey, which one of us do you think is the best? We know, we know Jesus is the best, but after him, we think, you think it's me or Peter? And the other one's like, well, wait a minute, hold on, why is it just you or Peter? What, why can't I be the greatest? I'm pretty good. I'm a good disciple. He chose me. I'm one of the 12, and they're walking behind Jesus, who has authority over all heaven and all earth, and they're saying, which one of us do you think is like second best? And this is where it just feels different, doesn't it? 
But here's what I want you to know. It would be a natural thought for us to think Jesus is going to come in and he's going to condemn them and he's going to squash that thought and say, no, you silly little children, you shouldn't want to be great. Your desire should be simply to be my followers. And if you're my followers, that's enough. But Jesus doesn't say that. Do you notice what he says? He says, if you want to be great. If you want to be great. Jesus doesn't say a desire for greatness is wrong. He says the way that you think of greatness is wrong. So Jesus, he doesn't respond by condemning them. Jesus doesn't condemn their desire for greatness. He corrects their misconception of what greatness is. And I love what John Piper says about this verse. He writes, our desire for greatness has been corrupted by sin. And the corruption results in two things. He says, we don't desire to be great. We desire to be known as great. And we don't desire to be great. We desire to be greater than someone else. And that's the way that sin has corrupted our desire for greatness. In other words, the joy of true greatness has been corrupted into some cheap, pleasure that comes when we feel better than someone else or when we're praised by someone else. And Jesus says, let's redirect our desire for greatness from being better than someone else and being praised by someone else to being accepted and loved by God. See, the desire for true greatness doesn't come from being better than somebody else or being praised by somebody else. True greatness comes from hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your Father's rest. And sin has corrupted us from realizing that. So that's what Jesus sees happening in his disciples. And instead of condemning them, he corrects them by teaching them about what true greatness is. Here's what he says. He says, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said, anybody who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf, they welcome me. Anybody who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. So let me boil down what Jesus is saying here. True greatness is being a blessing to as many people as possible. True greatness is bearing each other's burdens. True greatness is bearing each other's burdens. So whose burdens do we bear? Whose burdens do we bear? Jesus says, make yourself last and be a servant of everybody in front of you. Make yourself last and then serve everybody in front of you. And so to illustrate this point, Jesus brings in a child, or maybe the child was already, I don't know, I'm sure he asked the mother's permission before he brought the child in, by the way. Okay, so he, he brings in this child, and it's a perfect example. We know that when we help a child, they're not really going to be in a position to repay our kindness, are they? Right? If, if, if we help a child, they're not going to say, well, hey, thanks for your time. Here's a, a $25 gift card to Amazon. Thank you so much for helping me. Right? Child's not going to do that. Child probably isn't going to tell anybody important about the nice thing that you did for them? Depending on how old the child is, they may not even say thank you. So here's the idea of what Jesus is saying. He's saying help people who can't help you. Help people without a desire for recognition. Help people without needing a thank you. He says help people. 
Now, should we help people who can help us? Yeah. Should we help people uh, who would recognize us? Yeah. Should we help people who will say thank you? Yeah. But don't make those requirements for helping anybody. I saw a great example of this this past week uh, from retired NBA great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Anybody familiar with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? All-time NBA great. He is in the rare air. And uh, I'm not a basketball guy, so I I can't tell you a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not going to do a sports metaphor. Um, But I'm going to tell you just a little bit about where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is in the all-time NBA landscape. Uh, He scored more points in NBA history than anybody else. Okay, so that's some pretty rare air. He scored more points than Michael Jordan. You're a pretty good ball player. He's won six NBA championships, right? He is among the all-time greatest. Now, here's where I'm going with this. This past week, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in the news again because of something that he announced. He announced recently that he was going to auction off all of his NBA and college memorabilia. And uh, here's what he had to say, uh, that he was being interviewed by a local news outlet, and they said, but Kareem, you have so much memorabilia, so much stuff that is priceless to the game of basketball. Not yet. I'm not ready for this, but don't look. Everybody look away. Dramatic reveal. It's not ready. (laughs) Forget what you read. (laughs) So he was being interviewed by the local news outlet, and they said, Kareem, you have so much priceless memorabilia from your time at UCLA, from your time in Milwaukee, from your time in L.A., and you're just going to sell all of this stuff? And here's what Kareem had to say. I'm ready for you now. (laughs) He said, when it comes to choosing between storing a championship ring or a trophy in a room or providing kids with an opportunity to change their lives, the choice is pretty simple. Sell it all. I love that. Sell it all. (laughs) Now, I get that Kareem's probably going to get a lot of really good press from this, but I can't help but think he didn't do it for that. I think he did it to help people who couldn't help him. I think he did it to help people who needed help. And I love that. I also love people who devote themselves to ministering to children. I love people who devote themselves to ministering to children who aren't even born yet. You think about somebody who's not going to say thank you. Affecting the life of a child who's not born yet. That child's not going to say thank you. They're probably never going to know what was done for them. And people like the ministry at, at care and choices, they do it anyway. Not for recognition, not to be praised, but because it's the right thing to do. So whose burdens do we bear? Whoever has one. Doesn't matter if they can do anything for you. Doesn't matter if they can. Doesn't matter if they can't. Doesn't matter if they say thank you. Doesn't matter if they don't. Doesn't matter if they say nice things about you. That's how it worked for Jesus, by the way. Right? What, how did Jesus' ministry go? He came to earth and he lived for a sinful humanity. He bore our burdens. He bore that punishment. He took it on the cross when he died for us and he knew full well. He knew full well that there would be rooms full of people like this who would praise him. And they would say, praise the name of the Lord our God. And would say, they would sing songs in celebration about how death was arrested and our new lives began. He knew full well that there would be rooms full of people like this. But he also knew there would be rooms full of people and homes 
where people would grow up, where Jesus was nothing more than something you put on the front of a swear word. He knew there would be people who were violently opposed to the name of Jesus, who were aggressive in their ridicule of Christianity. He knew there would be people who were murdered simply because they spoke the name of Jesus. That there were people in the world that were so violently against faith that they would kill someone for it. And he died for us anyway. For those who love him, for those who don't love him. Whose burdens did Jesus bear? Everybody's. Everybody's. That's how he's called us to live too. So we bear each other's burdens. Each other's a pretty big word. When do we bear them? When do we bear I'm sorry. Uh, how do we bear them? How do we help? How do we bear somebody's burdens? Well, that depends on what they need help with. And we'll talk more about that here in just a minute, but I want to start with this idea. When it comes to helping someone, uh, we, we start with an idea. It's a Latin phrase. It's called quid pro quo. And, and that's how we like to think about helping somebody, quid pro quo. Something for something is a decent translation of that, unless you speak Latin. Don't correct me, okay? Uh, but we think about helping somebody, and we want something for something. I'll help you with that if you help me with this. I'll help you cut down your tree if you give me some of the wood from it. And that's fine. It's not a problem if a situation is mutually beneficial. There's no need to apologize for that. But Jesus encourages us to think in a different way. He doesn't encourage us to think quid pro quo. He encourages us to think pro bono. No charge. Jesus encourages us to think pro bono. And you may know that, that pro bono is a word that's used in the legal community. It denotes a lawyer who's working at no charge. They're donating their time. And I read some stories this week from pro bono cases, and I'd like to, to share one with you that really, I think, exemplifies the way that Jesus calls us to live. And uh, I'll just note that names in this story have been changed. So Gwen Gwen was a single mom, and she was struggling to make it week to week in 2004 when I met her. And she took on employment as an administrative assistant uh, several months before, and she was working at the rate of $15 an hour. She was running errands and handling administrative responsibility for her employer. And unfortunately, her employer decided he wanted to terminate her employment in favor of another candidate. The problem is roughly $1,500 of unpaid wages were owed to Gwen on the date of her termination, and her employer refused to pay. Under Louisiana law, an employer's failure to pay wages can subject the employer to penalties, to interest, to attorney's fees, and other amounts and costs. Yet, private counsel is often unwilling to accept such cases as proof of liability and collection of final judgment can be time-consuming with little reward in the end. It's for these reasons that Gwen was unable to find a private lawyer to assist her, and she was ready to give up when she turned to the pro bono project. I want you to notice what's happening here. Gwen needs help, but it's hard for her to get help because it's not 
advantageous. Now, I understand. Lawyers got to make a living too, right? You can't donate all of your time for something that's going to yield no results. I understand that. But the Pro Bono Project was able to partner Gwen with a private lawyer who was willing to take on her case for no fee, pursued Gwen's rights. After multiple demand letters sent to the employer, the project, uh, the project lawyer voluntarily uh, filed suit against the employer and set the motion for or set things in motion for a trial. When the employer refused to compromise the case at all, the trial went forward, and Gwen was successful in her claim. She recovered the $1,500 that were owed her in wages and another $10,000 in penalties. The lawyer writes, The value of this judgment to a single mom with nowhere left to turn was immeasurable, particularly when one considers that Gwen was ready to give up and throw in the towel walk away from her claim altogether. Instead, in addition to feeling vindicated, Gwen has been paid the amount that she earned, and the penalty monies have been collected and saved for her daughter in a trust for her college years. Taking on that case didn't make sense from the perspective of the lawyer who needs to bill who needs to bill so that way he can earn an income so that he can provide for his family. It's a lengthy project. The facts are hard to prove, and it doesn't usually result in a payment. Right? The lawyer has to make a living too, and sometimes, sometimes church helping someone doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. Sometimes helping someone carry their burden can take a long time and yield very few visible results. Sometimes there's no obvious benefit. Sometimes it just doesn't seem to make any sense, but we do it anyway. Jesus calls us to bear each other's burdens pro bono. One of the things I love most about this community is the way that this practice is embodied. I don't have to teach that here. It's how life goes. So I think about the guys who get together and they take firewood to people who need it. And that happens so often. And I see pickup trucks full and loaded down and going different places all over the community, delivering firewood to people who need it. And I think about a while back uh, when Ben Carter and the rest of the trustees put together an oil change day for single moms. They didn't necessarily have the time or the means to do that for themselves. And they checked oil and changed oil and got tires and checked air filters and all of these things for people who couldn't do that themselves. I just think, man, I love that we bear each other's burdens here. And I think about last week, I got an email from a friend and she said, hey, I, I've been thinking and, and I've thought about all of these things that I know how to do and I could teach somebody else to do that. She said, I know how to, I know how to meal prep. And I know how to can vegetables. And, and that could be helpful to somebody. If they could get a whole week's worth of meals done ahead of time, and all they've got to do when they get home is thaw that out and put it in the oven for a little bit, I can help with meal preps and help crockpot meals. I could teach them how to do that, and I love that. It's bearing each other's burdens. And she said, well, what if somebody's sitting on a tight budget and, and, and they don't really know how to manage their money all that well? What if they had an opportunity to learn about budgeting and finances from somebody who does? Or a time where parents could just meet together and be encouraged and challenge each other. 
And I think, man, that's very much the heart of Jesus, to bear each other's burdens. Bear each other's burdens, no matter what they look like. We all have burdens. We all have things that weigh heavy on our shoulders that we carry from week to week. For some of you, it's grief. You could just use somebody to sit down with and talk to about what you're struggling with. Let's just bear each other's burdens. Let's just bear each other's burdens. So the last question is this. When do we help? I got a really simple answer for you. Whenever the need arises. I heard a story once from a community like ours about a farmer who lost a loved one shortly before planting season. And another farmer had a real big operation in that same community. He just came over and planted that guy's field for him. You know how much time a farmer has during planting season? It's not very much. (laughs) Not very much at all. And that gentleman just went over and planted the field for the other guy. He saw a need. He met it. Wasn't a convenient time. Didn't matter because there was a need. I'm going to close with this. In verse 35, Jesus says, if you want to be first, you have to make yourself a servant of all. Verse 37, he says, if you receive a child in my name, you receive God. And it reminds me of Matthew 25. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison and come visit you? You remember what Jesus says? He says, to the extent that you do it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. When we bear each other's burdens, we aren't just following Jesus' example of service. We're serving Jesus. When we bear each other's burdens, we aren't just ministering like Jesus. We're ministering to Jesus. That's how a disciple lives. That's how a disciple lives. So as we continue this journey to change, my prayer is that some of you will realize that you need to follow Jesus. Some of you might realize that I'm not presentable to God because of my sin. And I hope that you realize that's okay because Jesus can wash you and give you a new heart. And I hope that some of you begin to be changed by Jesus and some of you will commit to bearing each other's burdens in the service of Jesus because that's what makes this place great. Not the beauty of the building or the quality of the music or the names and numbers of the attenders. The things that make this place great are the fact that we aren't chasing the praise of man. We are following God. The thing that makes this place great is that we don't serve to receive the thanks of man. We serve people to receive God. The thing that makes this place great is that we don't long for the fleeting praise of mortal men. We long for God. We long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's continue to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I trust that as we do, God will give us everything we need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. We thank you that even though we on our own are not presentable to you, we thank you that you sent Jesus to make us presentable. Not of ourselves, but of your righteousness, God. 
We thank you for your righteousness, God, and we pray that that you would continue to grow us up into your image and into your likeness, God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see not just what we desire, but what the people around us need. God, we pray that you would help us to grow as followers of you so that this community will be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.